Here's what we're going to do today. We are going to be starting a brand new series in the book of Ephesians. And the title of the series is Identity Issues, God's Glory in Us Through Christ's Work for Us. Identity Issues, God's Glory in Us Through Christ's Work for Us. So we're going to spend the next 14 weeks in verses 1 through 14 of Ephesians chapter 1. We're just going to look at one verse a week, okay? We're just going to kind of crawl through it real slow, and uh, that'll take us right up until the Christmas season. Now, here's the thing about this passage that we're going to be looking at as you open your Bibles there to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 is perhaps the most Christocentric passage in all of Scripture. In 14 verses, Jesus is mentioned 14 times. And you'd be hard-pressed to find a section of Scripture that exalts the person of Christ more radically, beautifully, carefully and clearly than these first 14 verses of Ephesians chapter 1. So as we're studying this together for this season, it's going to be all about Jesus, his glory and his work. But here's what's also going to happen. We're going to discover more about ourselves, who we are, how we ought to think, feel and live. Because to exalt Jesus is only so much lip service if it doesn't actually change your life, the way that you think, feel, and live. So as we discover more about Christ, who he is and what he's done, we'll discover more about ourselves, who we are, our identity, and how we ought to live. And part of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ is to have our identity wrapped up in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So that's what we'll be studying. We're going to read right now the first 14 verses of Ephesians 1, just to get the flavor for it, even though we'll just be studying the first verse today. I am uh, reading and teaching in the series from the New Living Translation. So we'll start reading right now, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. It says, This letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. I am writing to God's holy people in Ephesus who are faithful followers of Christ Jesus. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. He's so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. He has showered his kindness on us, along with all wisdom and understanding. God has now revealed to us his mysterious plan regarding Christ, a plan to fulfill his own good pleasure. And this is a plan. At the right time, he will bring everything under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. Furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God. For he chose us in advance 
and he makes everything work out according to his plan. And God's purpose was that we Jews, who were the first to trust in Christ, would bring praise and glory to God. And now you Gentiles have also heard the truth, the good news that God saves you. And when you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit, whom he promised long ago. The Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance he promised and that he has purchased us to be his own people. He did this so we would praise and glorify him. Let's pray. Lord, we we just do that right now. We praise and glorify you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for this written, rich explanation of the person and the work of Christ. And we ask that in this season, Lord, our hearts would be thrilled with who Christ is and what he's done for us. We ask that our minds would be overwhelmed with the truth of your choosing of us. You're loving us and adopting us. You're identifying us as your own. That our lives would be set on fire and set on course with your glory and your purpose and your plan. Your mystery and your glory unfolded in our lives by the work of Christ. Lord, we thank you for these things. They're they're wonderful. Holy Spirit, make them wonderful to this church. Make them wonderful to this church. Make, Make this passage like food that nourishes our souls that transforms our minds. And so, Lord, we ask that today as we're doing this, you would please anoint me to teach and preach for your glory, Lord. Can't do it without you. I feel unworthy and unable. Holy Spirit, please anoint me as you open up our minds that we might be a changed people for your glory in the world. We ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, the title of today's message is Dirtiness and Holiness. Dirtiness and Holiness. What is identity? What what, what does that even mean? We throw that around lightly. Well, we just want to think about it real basically. Identity is the fact of being who and what we are. Okay, Our, our, our identity is the understanding, the reality of being who and what we are. And our sense of identity, of self-understanding, affects everything. It affects the way that we think. It affects the way that we act. It affects the way that we interact with one another. It affects our relationships. It is from our sense of identity that we have either a sense of worthiness or a sense of shame. That we have either a sense of belonging or a sense of exclusion and withdrawal. That we have either a sense of hope or we have a sense of despair. And all of us have an identity, and really to some certain degree, many identities. And we base and build our identity on different things. A lot of people here in America build their identity on things like bank accounts. How much you have in the bank can shape and form your identity, your self-perception, your actions, and your interactions. A lot of people form their identity on things like good looks. They're incredibly beautiful or handsome or attractive. That shapes the way they think about themselves and others. People build their identity on career, position, power, 
influence. People can build their identity on talents. I'm, I, I run track and I'm the fastest guy and that becomes identity. I'm the best surfer in the world and that's an identity. People can build their identity on their circle of friends, their sphere of influence, those that they love and who loves them. People sometimes build their identity on being a good parent or just being a parent in and of itself. You can build an identity on the love of a spouse or a significant other, the way that they love you and care for you. You can shape and be the primary former of your identity. You can form identity on achievements, all sorts of different things that we frequently build identity upon. They create our identity. But when we talk about those things that we're all familiar with, we must ask the question, what happens when they're gone? What happens when the bank account fails? What happens when the marriage fails? What happens when the kids leave home? What happens when you lose that position or that career? It's a dead-end thing now. What happens when your good looks are gone? What happens when things that we build our identity on go away is we cease to know who we are. We cease to understand our place. And so we start to feel lost. We start to feel adrift. We start to feel void of meaning. And so what happens when we've built our identity on any one of these good things is we try desperately to maintain them at all costs because they shape and inform who we think ourselves to be. We've seen people who have built their identity on their good looks. And and as they age, they, they refuse to age gracefully. And so it's surgery after surgery, right? And tuck after tuck and pull after pull and primp after primp and squeeze after squeeze. And and you see that go on for decades and decades. We often see it in Hollywood. And to those of us on the outside, it is absolutely ridiculous. Like, what are you doing? Just get old and die already. Like, why are you still trying to look that way? It's, it's creepy. But what that proves to us is that when something forms our identity, our self-understanding, who we are, it becomes so important that there's almost nothing we won't do to hold on to that, to maintain that. Because without it, we don't know who we are anymore. And so then what we end up doing with those things is deifying them, exalting them to an ultimate place. If it's your achievements, that's ultimate. If it's your bank account, that's ultimate. If it's your good looks, that's ultimate. If it's parenting, that's ultimate. We deify these things. And the problem with that is that none of those things can bear the responsibility of Godhood. None of those things were formed or fashioned to be God. None of those things are able to rightly form our identity and how we think about ourselves. So that we can say building identity apart from anything other than God is altogether unstable. And it leads to an unstable life and an unstable culture and an unstable society. Now, conversely, those were all good things. Other people build their identity on the lack of those things or on other things. 
they don't feel good looking or, or they don't have money or, or they don't have influence or they don't have the position or they, they don't have the talents. And so their identity is unworthy, unwanted, unable, never measuring up. And I wonder how many of the Ephesians felt that way when they got this letter from Paul. Because here is the authoritative apostle Paul who had been at that church for three years, who had planted that church and shepherded that church and loved that church. The elders of that church wept when he said he was leaving. And now from prison, he sends him this letter. And he says, it's from Paul. You know me, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. And I am writing to God's holy people in Ephesus. I'm wondering... When they heard themselves called by the great apostle, holy, how many of them thought, I, I'm not holy. I, I'm not even worthy. I, I don't know where I belong. I, I don't know where I'm wanted. I, I feel anything but holy. I, I feel more dirty than holy. Other translations say saints. He's writing to the saints in Ephesus. I wonder how many of them said, I, I feel more like a scum than a saint. Ephesus was a big influential city in the time, the fourth or, fourth, fourth or excuse me, fifth largest in that region of Asia. Port city, influential, and it had all the vices of any other pagan city during that time. All the cultic worship and pagan worship and, and cultic prostitution and all the same temptations. And I wonder how many of these Christians who are Christians just like us heard themselves being called holy and said, I feel more dirty than holy. Hear themselves being called a saint and say, I feel more like a scum than a saint. And yet, Scripture is identifying them as God's holy people, saints in Ephesus. And in the same way, Scripture identifies every single Christian as God's holy people, as God's saints in various locations, Santa Barbara, Carpinteria, Ventura, surrounding areas. But you see, I, man, I, I feel more like Peter than, than I do a saint. Remember in Luke chapter 5 when Jesus wanted to use Peter's boat to preach because there's this crowd pressing around Jesus there on the Sea of Galilee. And he stepped into Peter's boat and said, Peter, let us out a little bit from the shore and, and I'll preach to the crowd. And Jesus preached to the crowd. When he was done, he said to Peter, now, Peter, let down your nets for a great catch. And Peter's like, oh, Lord, here's the deal. Okay, we've been fishing all night and we haven't gotten anything. You're a great rabbi, but you don't know beans about fishing. Okay, you do the teaching, I'll do the fishing, okay? He said, Lord, we, we, we fish all night and haven't caught anything. And the Lord said, let down your nets. And you know the rest of the story. He's this great and huge catch, bigger than anything Peter had ever seen. The nets begin to break. He's got to call over the other boats to pull it in. And what is Peter react, Peter's reaction in Luke 5? He says, depart from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. When he saw the power of Christ, the holiness of Christ, the authority of Christ over all the created realm, his sense was not, oh, well, I'm holy too, or I'm a saint and I should be here. His sense was, Lord, I, I'm, I depart from me. Peter had the sense of dirtiness in the face of the majesty and the power of Christ. I, I, I feel more like Peter. I feel more like the publican, the the tax collector, who in Luke chapter 18 was in the temple, and it says that he wouldn't even lift his eyes up to heaven. He just beat on his breast and said, have mercy on me, God, a sinner. 
Actually, in the Greek, there's a definite article of mercy on me, the sinner. He, he won't even look to heaven. There was this real sense of shame. I identify more with the, the prodigal. When thinking about going back to the father's house after spending his inheritance on loose living and sexual morality and all those other things, ending up in the pigsty, said to him, to his father, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. There was among these men a sense of dirtiness, shame, and unworthiness, feeling more like scums and saints. And the reason is sin. You see, sin is like this. Sin is portrayed in Scripture in a lot of different ways. But one of the strong ways in which we see sin portrayed, one of the metaphors it's used, is sin as a stain. Sin is is something dirty. Sin that marks us negatively. Something from which we have to be cleansed and washed. There's a stain on us. So then talking about the psalmist would say in Psalm 51 verse 4, Wash me thoroughly of my iniquity and purify me of my sin. See, Scripture teaches that when it comes to sin, there is a dirtiness. There's this this staining effect. It it stains our lives. It it marks us negatively. So that we do, don't we? We feel like Peter and just, Lord, depart from me. I'm dirty. We feel like the publican, too ashamed to even look like God. We feel like the prodigal, altogether unworthy to approach God. Nobody likes stains, right? When I I come on Sunday morning, the last thing I'm going to do is wear a stained shirt, I might sweat through and stain my armpits a little bit, but I wouldn't come like that before, right? That only happens when I get in front of you guys and I'm terrified, but, but I wouldn't come like that. Nobody goes anywhere with a stained shirt unless they're going to work or some sloppy thing, but, but we don't want to put on stained clothes and show up somewhere we want to look good and say, Hey, look, I'm covered in stains. We don't do that. We, we go to great lengths to get rid of stains. My wife has become a stain removal expert. Like no matter what happens, something falls on any of our clothes at home. She's like, oh, no worries. Give that to me. Whips it off. Good as new. She's got products and potions and all these different things. Why? Because we, we, we don't like stains. We don't want those things on our clothes. It seems dirty. And there is with sin this sense of dirtiness. And, and, and here's the problem. God is anything but dirty. God is absolutely, utterly holy. Completely other. Completely pure. Completely innocent. Completely just. Completely right. Completely removed from sin and its staining effects. In fact, God is frighteningly holy. There's nobody who's in the presence of God in Scripture who's like, oh yeah, this is pretty cool, he's pretty cool. He's frighteningly holy. We get the glimpse of that with Peter, who said, depart from me. And as God is frighteningly holy, we are equally frighteningly dirty. Frighteningly guilty. Stained and unworthy. Every single one of us. 
That's what Scripture declares. Every single one of us is guilty, stained by sin. And even those who would think themselves to be doing well, Scripture reminds us that that God sees all things. God sees our darkest moments. He doesn't just see on the exterior. He knows our hearts and our minds. If we, together in this room, knew each other's heart and minds, we would run from this room as quickly as we could. Because we know what is in there is a stained sort of wickedness in every single person. And because God is frighteningly holy and we are frighteningly dirty and guilty, God in his holiness always judges sin. God will always judge sin. Now, we love that for everybody else. Because we see all the injustices in the world. And one of the things that helps us to get through the day, one of the things that helps us through a day like this, is that we believe there is a God who at some time, in some way, will right every wrong. Will judge with equity every injustice. Every perversion. Every wrong stain. Everything that's been marred. Everyone who's acted evilly. We believe that there's a God who will one day deal with that. And we love that for everybody else. We love that for the Hitlers of the world. The terrorists of the world. And the drivers of the world who cut us off. We we love God's justice. (laughs) For all of them. But you see, God's justice is meant for us. It's not for them. It's for us. And when it comes to us... We are stained and marred and dirtied and tainted by sin. And we're deserving of the wrath of God. God as holy will deal with all unholiness. And we have a sense of this, don't we? As humanity, collectively, we not only have a sense that One day, and this helps us to cope, God will judge everything, but we have the sense that in some way, and this makes us afraid, we we sinned against him. Everyone does. Whether it's now, or they're maybe very good at masking it now, and so on their deathbed when things are sober, we've got this sense that we have sinned against God, and, and we're ashamed of that. Again, dirtiness, unworthiness, shame. And what shame is, essentially, and we all experience shame. It's one of the things that's common to humanity. What shame is, essentially, whether it's shame before God or it's shame before one another, is shame is a fear of being unlovable. Shame is a fear of being unlovable. The teenager who's one out at night with his or her friends and did things they'd never done before. And she went further than she ever thought she would go and She comes home in the morning and looks her dad in the eye. She feels this overwhelming sense of shame. It's it's, it's a fear that's asking, am I I still still lovable? I feel so dirty. I I never thought I would do that. And it's this fear that perhaps this sturdiness on us is going to make us unlovable to those who previously loved us. And so 
it begins to break connection. We begin to develop, to develop these senses of, I, I, I don't belong, I, I can't belong, I'm not good enough. And this is the way that humanity feels before God. And, and so what we do, whether it's before God or with one another, when we're experiencing shame, a sense of not measuring up, not being worthy, feeling unlovable and so not able to belong, is we either move away by withdrawing, hiding the fact, living in secret, silencing ourselves, hiding. We, we either move away, I don't belong, I'm ashamed, let me slink away. Or we move toward. Now we, we try to appease and please and make it better and prove ourselves to be worthy. These are the two things that humanity does with God. Because we know we're guilty before God. The stains are upon us. And so many would just kind of slink away and want to hide from God. Others would say, well, I think I could appease God. God must be a negotiator, right? I think if I do better, it'll outweigh the very bad. And I'll make myself acceptable. I'll make myself lovable before God. And we do this with one another. And what we find ourselves doing is substituting fitting in for belonging. What we all have, what we're all born with, is a need to belong. What shame does in our sense of dirtiness and failure and unworthiness, what shame does is makes us feel as though I can't belong anymore. I'm not as lovable as I once was. Or, or I've got to work really hard if I want to belong. And so what we do then, instead of belonging, is we just settle for fitting in. I don't think I could ever belong to that group. I don't think I could ever be one of God's saints. So what we try to do is merely fit in. And fitting in is different than belonging. Fitting in is something we all do all the time. You assess the situation, you see what they're wearing, you see how they're acting, you see what they're drinking, you see where they're going, and you do those things so that you can fit in. And you're able to, in the crowd, then look around and say, look, I fit in. I've got the right jeans. I got the right shoes. I got the right behavior. I was raising my hands in the right ways. I'm carrying the right Bible, the right translation. I'm fitting in. And we try to placate ourselves in an effort to numb this underlying sense of unworthiness, dirtiness, shame, which is a fear of not being loved. But you see, fitting in is not what we want. Fitting in will never do. What we want is belonging. And belonging is different from fitting in. It's not just assessing and adapting to go along with the crowd. Belonging is about being who we are and still being accepted. It's about not being required to change. I don't have to get better genes. I don't have to change the Bible translation. I don't have to drink a different drink. I don't have to send my kids to that private school. Belonging is about being accepted without having to change. You see, that's the beauty of marriage, isn't it? Isn't that the beauty of marriage? If you go into marriage saying, okay, I'm going to change this dude. That was my woman voice. It wasn't good. I'm sorry. It's probably slightly, slightly insulting. 
okay, I'm going to change this dude. I don't, I can't do it. Men, if you go into this marriage, I'm going to change this chick. Listen, that, that, you, it's, all, it's already a failure. You see, that, that'll never be marriage. And, and don't get married. And don't get married. You see, what's beautiful about marriage is this. I accept you. And I belong to you. And you belong to me. Just like you are. And negotiating that is awkward on the honeymoon, perhaps. But as the years go by, you know, there's this saying my wife and I have when we're just really being ourselves around each other is, oh, wow, the honeymoon is over, right? You guys have heard that saying, oh, the honeymoon's over because you're just, you're just doing things that you didn't do on the honeymoon. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Nobody will say it, but we all know what I'm talking about. But, but the beauty of marriage is that the honeymoon over isn't a lament for the old days where we had to hide and cover certain part of ourselves. It's actually a celebration of true belonging. It says, there's, there's nothing about me I have to hide. Naked and unashamed. There's nothing you don't know about me and that I don't know about you. And I, I still love you. You still belong. I am, I am my beloved's and he is mine. You see, that's, that's the beauty of marriage. That, that, that was the beauty of the garden. That was the beauty of garden, of the garden where, where Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed before each other and for, before God. There was no shame. There was no sense of dirtiness. It's a miracle of marriage. That's a miracle of the garden. And that is the miracle of the cross. Because the cross doesn't beckon us to change. The cross is a declaration of the all-consuming love of God who had his son drape himself in humanity, who was spit upon, mocked, beaten, scourged, and nailed to the cross, whose blood was spilt so that we might be accepted, loved, and adored by God with no change. You see, the beauty of the cross is that God never says, clean yourself up and then come. He says, I will change you from dirty to holy. You will go from feeling like a scum to actually being a saint. The beauty of the cross is that we are totally exposed before God and yet fully accepted and loved in Christ. So we, we are then, those who have undergone, those who have put our faith in Christ, we are those who have had a change in identity. So the Bible speaks to us when it says, I, I'm writing to God's holy people in Santa Barbara, in Carpinteria, in Ventura. I am writing to God's saints in those areas. And so we have to stop thinking about saint how we previously thought about saint. You see, normally we think about saint through a Catholic lens or, or um, an Eastern Orthodox lens or just a, a cultural lens that says it's someone who's performed really well at some time. They have their credentials. 
They met the criteria. They did excellently. That's not the biblical definition of a saint. That's something that people made up. See, every Christian is a saint before God. Every Christian is holy before God. Okay, well, what does that mean? It doesn't mean you have good morals. It's not a performance thing. It's not an ethnic thing. That's what we say in culture. Oh, wow, she's a saint. She just lives excellently. That's not what God is talking about. It speaks of belonging. Hagios in the Greek. It means to be set apart. You are God's holy people. God's saints. God's set apart ones. It speaks of belonging. Because the primary description of God is that he's holy. When the angels see God, they say, holy, holy, holy. And when we then, through the cross of Jesus Christ, we who were stained and dirty, 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 are forgiven of our sins and now made holy, it is a term of belonging to God. God says, I am holy, and I've bought you and purchased you, and you are now holy. And it's purely a positional thing by the work of Jesus Christ. Nothing may have changed in our behavior, but something has changed in our essence. Behold, if any man or woman is in Christ, they are a new creation. They once were identified with other things. They're now identified with God as holy. Clean and pure, spotless, special, set apart. God's special possession. You see, in the world, we'll we'll look at us and say, well, they they don't live like saints. Their living isn't very holy. And if somebody thinks that you are saintly or holy, they don't know you very well. But the world will try to put back on us negative identities. Ugly, worthless, untalented, unwanted, dirty, don't measure up. But God insists in this passage that the most important thing about you is you're holy. You're a saint before God. You are God's special possession. Shame, dirtiness, unworthiness are dealt with at the cross. Christ took the stain on our behalf. He has removed our shame. The burden of our dirt was poured upon him. And so holiness is a way of saying that we belong to God because of what Jesus has done for us. Martin Luther said, if I examine myself, I find enough unholiness to shock me. But when I look at Christ in me, I find I am altogether holy. You see, he, he was starting to get his identity. Now, now here's what happens. Once we accept that by faith, that Christ has made us holy, pure and spotless in the eyes of God, set apart, his special possession, naked and unashamed before him. Once we get that we are positionally holy, then we are set on this journey of trying to bring practical reality in line with positional reality. We are holy. Now part of our goal comes is to be holy. That's why he writes to them and says, I'm writing to God's holy people in Ephesus who are faithful followers of Christ Jesus. 
You see, we're not only given a new identity, we're given a new way to live. God's holy people, identity, who are faithful followers of Christ Jesus, a brand new way to live. We have this sense now that I'm, I'm a, I'm a set-apart special possession to God. I, I want to start to live that way. How do I do that? We follow Jesus. That, that's who we are. We're Christ's followers. We follow the life and the teachings of Christ, which doesn't only mean moral excellence, but it means going to the cross when we fail. Because where, if we were to follow Christ, where did Christ go? He went to the cross. So being faithful followers doesn't just mean you're well-behaved. It means that when you behave poorly, you go to the cross immediately in repentance for forgiveness. It means that we're seated in the heavenlies with Christ because he didn't stay on the cross nor in the grave, but he rose to new life and is exalted at the right hand of the Father. And we are seated with him in the heavenlies. You see, it means that we, we pursue Christ and all that is true of him as now being true of us. And this becomes very important relationally. Life is about relationships and we've got to deal with one another. And we have this new and better identity and a new and better way to live. And the reason that it's important that we pursue holiness, sanctification, not only be holy and sanctified, is because few of us, well, that's a wrong statement, none of us are as gracious as God. We're very slow to forgive. We're very quick to be hurt. We're very quick to want to take vengeance and revenge. We're very good at holding grudges. We know how to hurt each other and we hurt each other deeply. That's why pursuing living like Jesus in his love, his kindness, his tenderness, his care, and his forgiving because of the cross is important because very few of us forgive as often as we should, and none of us seem to be able to forget. But you see, God has taken our sins and removed them as far as the east is from the west, buried in the deepest sea. And so what, what do we do? Well, we're holy people who are Christ followers, seeking to do that with and for one another. We don't stop at just being holy positionally. We always want to move toward acting more like Jesus practically. Why? We want our lives to be congruent, consistent with what is most true about us. And what is most true about you, Christian, is that you are God's special possession. God's holy people. God's saints. And all of us want to live consistently with what is most true true about us. That's, that's why it's not enough when we say to our children, I love you. That's not enough. They, they, they need to experience love. That's why no one's happy in a marriage where the spouse says, yeah, yeah, I love you, babe. But, but there's no practical explication of that. There's no real meaningful and regular demonstration of that. And it's, 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 Brutal for both parties because incongruent living is exhausting. And you're in a relationship where one party is saying, I love you, but they're never living that way. You're exhausted. And if you're living out of Christianity where you are called holy, 
a saint, but you're never living that way, then, then your Christianity becomes exhausting, doesn't it? Because it's tiresome to live in an incongruous manner. That's why we're exhorted to be here, faithful followers of Christ Jesus. Well, I think if we were to be honest, we'd say that that's, that's easier said than done. But that's the stuff of this journey. That's what we want to work on. Who are we in light of who Christ is and what he's done? And how do we be more like Christ, not just positionally, but practically? And let me finish by asking this question. What about when I don't feel holy or saintly? I'm hearing you. I put my faith in Jesus Christ, his death upon the cross in my place for my sins. He cleanses my sins. He washes me white as snow. He removes the burden of guilt and the stain of sin. But I don't feel holy. I don't feel like a saint. I still feel dirty. Well, let me say this. We only feel right when we believe right. We only feel right when we believe right. That is why, Christian man, Christian woman, you must preach the truth of the gospel to yourself every single day. That's why we need to hear 1 Corinthians 6, 11, But you were cleansed. Gosh, I feel dirty. But you were cleansed. I feel unworthy. But you were made holy. I feel unacceptable before God. But you were made right with God. How? By cleaning yourself up and acting better. No, it's not what it says. It says, but you were cleansed and you were made holy and you were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Have you called upon the name of Jesus Christ? Are you you repeatedly telling yourself in truth that that is what we believe? That by his spirit and through the cross, God has cleansed us, made us holy, and made us right with him. That we're not besmeared by sin anymore. We're, we're not defiled by it anymore. We're not stained or polluted. In fact, Ephesians 5 would say about Jesus in the church, he gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean. Washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without a spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Christians sometimes take that and say, you see, that's the kind of church that Jesus wants. We need to become that sort of church. So we'll end by saying this. If you built your identity on anything other than Jesus Christ and what he's done for you, your life is unstable. Nothing else can bear the weight of Godhood, but Christ alone. And what is most stable and most true about you is that you are God's special possession, his holy saint, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ. So that the next time that Jesus had asked Peter to let down his net, Peter didn't cower from him and say, depart from me. Peter jumped in the water and swam to him. So that the publican, the tax collector that day, who wouldn't even look to heaven... The text says in Luke 18, he went home justified, right with God that day. So that the prodigal, who felt so unworthy and ashamed and afraid whether or not the father would ever love him again, had the father embrace him, kiss him, and celebrate him.
Because what God is, is love. And what Christ has done has brought us into the love of God through the forgiveness of sins. And in God's eyes, you are holy. Thank you, Lord, for this beautiful truth. Holy Spirit, we ask that you minister these truths to our lives. We ask that you pour the love of the Father abroad in our hearts. Lord, for some of us, we, we get this by faith and we believe it and we receive it. It's even affecting the way that we feel and that we imagine you feel about us in really good ways. Thank you, Lord. For others of us, we struggle with this. We're asking for a work of grace. The theological truth would wash and renew our minds. Thank you that the most true thing about us is we're forgiven and loved. That you've removed our shame. Minister that to us, Lord. And then, Lord, yeah, help us to start to live in a brand new way. But first, Lord, secure our identity in you by work of your spirit. If you need help with any of this stuff, prayer team will be up here to my right and my left. Communion is up here to celebrate the cross of Christ by which we are cleansed and made holy. The carpets are here to worship. Let's do that.